Good morning, Bethel Church. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. Welcome back to week three of the big picture. Seeing the Bible story from Eden to eternity. This month, pastors Craig, Jonas, and I will be taking us on a 30,000-foot flyover of the entire Bible from cover to cover. Two weeks ago, we journeyed from Eden to Exodus, covering Genesis through Deuteronomy. Last week, from Exodus to Exile, covering Joshua through Chronicles. And this week is Exile to Emmanuel, completing the Old Testament. Here's the story so far. In the beginning, God made us and gave us a choice. Life with God forever or knowledge of good and evil. We chose knowledge and evil entered the world. But God didn't give up on us. God made covenants with Adam, Abraham, and Moses, promising to give their descendants land and leadership. God raised up Joshua to conquer the promised land, then judges and kings to defend it. Israel's kings worshipped idols, so God let the idols defend them. Israel erupts into civil war, north and south split. Babylon destroys Jerusalem and drags Israel off into exile as slaves. But even in our exile, God is with us. And soon, he would be with us face to face. In this morning's message, from exile to Emmanuel, we're covering the remaining books of the Old Testament, Ezra through Malachi. While these books aren't in chronological order, they center around one catastrophic event, Israel's exile in Babylon. First, Ezra and Nehemiah describe Jerusalem after the exile. Second, Esther through Daniel describe Babylon during the exile, with some other writings sprinkled in. Finally, Hosea through Malachi describe Bethlehem as the birthplace of the one who would end exile forever. Jerusalem was the hometown of their ancestors. Babylon, the hometown of their enemies. But Bethlehem would be the hometown of their God. We have a lot of ground to cover this morning, so let's start our journey right. Let's pray. Father God, we celebrate you. We celebrate that all throughout the story that you've been writing, you've had us and our salvation on your mind. We thank you for this powerful morning of worship that we've had, for these powerful choruses, an original song, all declaring the beauty and the glory of who you are. Lord, as we journey from Ezra through Malachi, reveal yourself. For we know you, Lord Jesus Christ, are shining through every verse, every chapter, every book. And it's in your powerful name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray. And all God's people said, amen. It's hard to run a business in the heart of the inner city, especially when a crime lord sets his sights on your block. 
Every month for the last nine years, some henchmen would pound on his door collecting payments. This October, he refused to pay. Since then, he slept in one of the back rooms with eyes half open, jolting out of bed at the slightest sound. Usually it's just some rat scurrying or some drunk hollering in the street, but tonight the sound is unmistakable. Henchmen pour through the alleyways armed to the teeth. He and his family bolt out the back gate through the community gardens and don't stop till they reach the outskirts. It's no use. They run right into an ambush. They're lined up before the crime lord. Henchmen execute his sons, carve out his eyes, and then traffic the rest of his family as slaves. Then they torch the city. This isn't the scene from some violent movie. This is Zedekiah's reality, the last king of Israel, when Babylon comes calling. Jeremiah tells the story, chapter 39, verse 1. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. When Zedekiah and the soldiers saw them, they left the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls. But the Babylonian army overtook Zedekiah at the plains of Jericho and took him to Nebuchadnezzar. There the king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. Then he put out Zedekiah's eyes and bound him with bronze shackles to take him to Babylon. The Babylonians set fire to the royal palace and the houses of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. Then they carried into exile to Babylon the people who remained in the city. Israel's slavery in Egypt was nothing compared to their exile in Babylon. For 70 years, Israel lived as Babylon's prisoners of war. They were worked to death, tortured for amusement, and forced to worship false gods. Imagine the worst thing that could possibly happen to you on earth. Israel's exile was worse. But all that was about to change. Jerusalem, hometown of Israel's ancestors. Ezra tells the story, starting in Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word the Lord had spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus to make a proclamation. The God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. Therefore, go up to Jerusalem and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. Everyone remembers the day the news arrived. Persia had conquered Babylon, and the Persian king had given Israel permission to return. For the first time in their lives, they were going home. Cyrus even sends them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts. Why would a pagan king set an entire civilization of slaves free and send them with such valuable gifts. 
because God moved his heart. Sometimes we think God just talks to Christians, but God can talk to anyone and move anyone's heart. Archaeological evidence repeatedly proves the Bible is true. Ezra's story is no exception. Take a look at the Cyrus Cylinder. We have Cyrus' original proclamation that he wrote on a stone cylinder. None of the survivors had ever seen their hometown, Jerusalem. Although they'd heard the stories from their ancestors, they called it the promised land, a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. It took over four months to trek the 700 miles from Babylon to Jerusalem. Imagine all the Babylon-born children asking their families, are we there yet? Finally, someone spots the road sign. Welcome to Jerusalem. The sojourners look in every direction, but there are no city walls, no temple to the one true God, only ash and rubble as far as the eyes can see. A small voice from the back breaks the silence. Are we there yet? On the one hand, this was Jerusalem. On the other hand, is it really Jerusalem without its temple and walls? That's why God raises up Ezra and Nehemiah to rebuild what's broken. First, let's meet Ezra. Ezra 7.1, after these things, Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a scribe, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. When Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, they burned everything to the ground. That meant every book of scripture too. How did Israel keep the scriptures throughout exile? They memorized them. Historians call this oral tradition. They told the stories again and again to their children and their children's children. And after they returned, scribes like Ezra rewrote the books. If every physical Bible was burned and every online Bible deleted, how much would you remember? And if after 70 years of that, someone held a Bible in their hands again and read from it, how excited would you feel? That's what happens in Nehemiah 8, verse 5. As Ezra opened the book, all the people stood up, lifted up their hands and shouted, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. We're going to read that again. And when we do, if you're able, I encourage you to do what it says. Can we do that? All right, so you know, might need to stretch a little bit, warm up. Here we go. Nehemiah 8, 5. And I challenge you as we read to do as it says. As Ezra opened the book, all the people stood up, lifted up their hands, and shouted, Amen! Amen! Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. You may be seated.
Do you get this excited when the Bible is read? This is God speaking directly to us. Next, let's meet Nehemiah. Nehemiah 1.1, the word of Nehemiah. One of my brothers came from Judah and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. I was the cupbearer of the king. Who is Nehemiah? He's the pagan king's cupbearer, one of the highest offices in the empire. But when he hears Jerusalem's walls are still in ruins, he resigns his six-figure desk job to become a volunteer construction worker a thousand miles away. Nehemiah 4.16, from that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and arrows. Without the walls, raiders would regularly attack and rob the people. These walls were more than curb appeal. They were a safe space for community. Ezra and Nehemiah highlight an important truth. When things fall apart, the first things we need to rebuild are worship and community. Still, Ezra and Nehemiah aren't the heroes of our story. While God got Israel out of Babylon, Israel hadn't gotten Babylon out of themselves. The trauma lingers and it taints their leadership. First, Ezra threatens husbands of foreign wives in Ezra 10.8. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property. Within the three days, all the men gathered greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra said to them, separate yourself from your foreign wives. God never asked Ezra to separate families, nor to do it in, by making them stand in the pouring rain. Remember Rahab of Jericho or Ruth of Moab. They were both Gentiles who married Israelites and God used them in Jesus' lineage. Ezra leads like a Babylonian. Next, Nehemiah assaults children of intermarriages in Nehemiah 13, 24. Half of their children did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them, beat some of the men, and pulled out their hair. If someone doesn't speak your language, pull out their hair. Nehemiah leads like a Babylonian. Israel may be back in Jerusalem, but they're still under pagan rule. First, it was Babylon, now Persia, later Greece, finally Rome. The slave masters look different, but make no mistake, Israel is still in exile. What happened back in Babylon? And how did it scar God's people so deeply? That takes us to the hometown of Israel's enemies, Babylon. The next 11 books, Esther through Daniel, tell the story of Israel's exile in Babylon. 
There are other stories sprinkled in too, like poems from David or Proverbs from Solomon. But there's one phrase that runs throughout all 11 books. How long, O Lord? First, there's Esther. While Ezra and Nehemiah tell the story of the Jews who returned to Jerusalem, Esther tells the story of the Jews who stayed behind in Babylon, which is now called Persia. A Jewish girl wins a beauty pageant and saves the Jewish people from mass murder. There are assassination plots, six-month-long parties, a 75-foot impaling pole, and the famous line from Esther 4.14, you have come to royal position for such a time as this. The book of Esther never mentions God, but God is clearly working behind the scenes. Then there's Job. Job experiences a sort of personal exile. God lets Satan take everything from Job, his wealth, his health, even his family. Again and again, Job asks, how long, O Lord? For example, Job 19.2, how long will you torment me and crush me? In the end, God reveals himself to Job and restores what was lost. The Psalms come next, where a phrase, how long, O Lord, occurs 19 times. David writes in Psalm 35, 17, how long, O Lord, will you look on? Rescue me from their ravages, my precious life from these lions. For David, the lions were mostly metaphorical. For Israel and Babylon, the lions were literal, as we'll see soon. Solomon's books come next, Proverbs through Song of Songs. Solomon, in his wisdom, knew that Israel was headed for destruction. Proverbs 6, 9, how long will you lie there, you sluggard? When will you get up from your sleep? Sadly, Solomon failed as king to prevent Israel's exile. Isaiah warned Israel to wake up they didn't listen. Who's heard Isaiah 6, 8? Then I heard a voice from the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And I said, here I am, send me. It's a popular verse for mission trips. But the message God sent Isaiah with was anything but popular. Verse 9, the Lord said, go and tell this. You will be ever hearing and never understanding ever seeing, but never perceiving. Then I said, for how long, O Lord? And he answered, until the cities lie ruined, until the houses are left deserted, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. God sent Israel to warn, sorry, God sent Isaiah to warn Israel that exile was coming. Jeremiah told the Babylon story that started our message how Zedekiah lost his city, his sons, and his eyes. Jeremiah urged Zedekiah to surrender, saying in Jeremiah 25, the Lord has sent his prophets to you again and again, but you did not listen and have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore, the Lord says, I will completely destroy them and make them serve the king of Babylon 70 years. 
Jeremiah had the answer to everyone's question. How long, O Lord? 70 years in Babylon. That was the harm Israel had inflicted on itself. Why would a loving God let us bring harm to ourselves? God is a responsible father. He knows that children need to experience consequences or will never grow up. God wanted Israel to grow up. And to grow up, they had to learn from their mistakes. They had to enter exile. In Jeremiah 29, 7, the prophet teaches us how to live in exile. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Basically, Babylon's home now. Make the most of it. He adds in Jeremiah 29, 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Jeremiah 29, 11 isn't about easy living. It's about exile. But even in exile, God has plans for his people. Plans to give them a hope and a future. A heavenly home with God himself. Jeremiah also wrote the Bible's next book, Lamentations, a series of five poems about Jerusalem's destruction. Jeremiah opens in Lamentations 1.1, how deserted lies the city, once so full of people. How like a widow is she, who was once great among the nations. He writes of fire, bloodshed, homelessness, nakedness, but he also writes about hope. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This is the origin of the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Even in exile, God is with us. Ezekiel authors the Bible's next book, Ezekiel and his wife live on the banks of the Chabar River as slaves during the Babylonian exile. There, the Lord gives Ezekiel a glimmer of hope. Ezekiel 37.1, the hand of the Lord was on me and he set me in the middle of a valley full of bones. I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones. Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I will attach tendons to you and I will make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath, ruach, in you. And you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Before Ezekiel's eyes, dry bones are resurrected into a mighty army. The word for breath in Hebrew is ruach, the same word for spirit. One day, God would put his spirit in us and breathe us back to life again. 
then there's Daniel. Daniel is just a teenager. When the Babylonians kidnap him from his home, castrate him so he won't mess with the king's harem, then rename him Belteshazzar, after the Babylonian god, Baal. How would you like to be kidnapped, castrated, and renamed Baal worshiper? Still, Daniel follows the advice of Jeremiah 29.7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. David quickly rises through the ranks, serving the king as if he's serving God himself. But what happens when the king makes a new law, ordering prayer illegal? Daniel 6.10. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. David breaks the law, but he doesn't hide it. He opens up his windows and submits to his punishment. It was stop praying or sleep in the lion's den. He chose lion's den. Verse 16, they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him. And he could not sleep. And at the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel. Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God has sent his angels and he shut the mouths of the lions. We submit to authorities, but we obey God. It's what God wants first, what authorities want second, and what we want third. When we put God first, authorities second, and ourselves third, we may suffer for it. But as the exile shows, if we don't put God first, we'll suffer anyway. First Peter starts out by calling Christians exiles and makes this point in first Peter 3.17. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. All of us are exiles on earth, longing for our heavenly home. All of us struggle and suffer. Suffering doesn't mean God has left us. As Daniel saw in the lion's den, sometimes suffering shows us how close God really is. Daniel's story isn't about Daniel being brave in the face of lions. It's about God being with us in our exile. He's never left us and he never will. Speaking of God with us, that takes us to the final books of the Old Testament and the hometown of Israel's God, Bethlehem. The Old Testament ends with 12 minor prophets, Hosea through Malachi, who wrote around the time of Israel's exile. They wrote about the past how God had saved Israel time and time again. They wrote about the present, how God wanted Israel to follow him. But they also wrote 
about the future. How God was about to enter his creation personally. He would be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5.2. Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9. Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah 11.12, they paid me 30 pieces of silver. He would be God's only son pierced for us. Zechariah 12.10, they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child. He would be coming soon. Malachi 3.1, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come into his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. Thus, the Old Testament ends with God's people looking to Bethlehem, longing for Emmanuel. Isaiah 7, 14, behold, a virgin will bear a son and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. As the hymn goes, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. If I had to say what the Old Testament is about in one word, that word would be Jesus. Some Christians think Jesus doesn't show up until the New Testament, but Jesus is in every book of the Old Testament. In Genesis, he is the one and only son sacrificed. In Exodus, he is our Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the deliverer of God's people. In Joshua, he is the one whose name means he saves. In Judges, he is our final judge. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings, he is our true king. In Chronicles, he is the son of David who reigns forever. In Ezra Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of broken down walls. In Esther, he is the one working behind the scenes. In Judge, in Job, he is the mediator between God and man. In Psalms, he is our shepherd. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he is the meaning of life. In Song of Songs, he is our bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he is the weeping Messiah. In Lamentations, he assumes God's wrath for us. In Ezekiel, he is the son of man. In Daniel, he shuts the mouth of lions. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband to an unfaithful bride. 
In Joel, he pours out his spirit on his people. In Amos, he delivers justice to the oppressed. In Obadiah, he judges those who do evil. In Jonah, he is the one who rises after three days. In Micah, he is the ruler from Bethlehem. In Nahum, he promises a future of peace. In Habakkuk, he crushes injustice. In Zephaniah, he saves with outstretched hands. In Haggai, he restores our worship. In Zechariah, he is the only son pierced for us. And in Malachi, he is the savior coming soon. 400 years later, a baby is born in Bethlehem. Jesus, also called Emmanuel, God with us. He did come soon. He lived the perfect life we never could, died the death we deserved on the cross, and rose again so sinners like us could be forgiven and free with God forever. In Psalm 119, 94, the psalmist prays, I am yours, save me. In Jesus, God does. Jesus is the God of the Bible. And he wants to be the God of your life. Just tell him right now, Lord Jesus, I am yours, save me. Then ask another Christian, to help you grow your relationship with God. The Old Testament is filled with promises made. The New Testament is filled with promises kept. Join us next week as Pastor Craig continues our big picture series with the Gospels from Emmanuel to Easter. Let me leave you with one thing. Augustine writes in his confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We are all exiles awaiting our heavenly home. We all struggle, suffer, and long for more. Listen to someone's story this week and give them your undivided attention. Let's pray. Father God, we celebrate you. And we celebrate the story that you've been writing, the opportunity that we've had to journey from Genesis through Malachi over these past three weeks. Lord, we are excited for what you'll be doing in the coming weeks as we journey into the New Testament. Lord, we pray that even Monday morning, Tuesday afternoon, Thursday evening, Lord, throughout this week, that you will call to our mind images, promises, truths from the Old Testament. That you will help us to put these pieces into the big picture that you're painting and to embrace our role in this ongoing story that you're writing. We pray this all in your powerful name, Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen.